All right, need you to open your Bibles this morning if you have them, because I'm not sure that we're going to be able to have scriptures on the screen today. So we have, we have a little technical issue going on, and it's ironic that this, the software will show everything but the scriptures today, because our passage is about false teaching. So... Um, <laughs> Seriously, the Bible module malfunctioned in our software, and we may not have that up there. So I trust you bring a Bible to church, electronic or paper or something. It's a good idea uh, to bring your Bible to church. So. so if something odd shows up on the screen, uh, I'm sorry. But we'll, we'll, do our, we'll do our best this morning. But what I want to start by talking with you about is, uh, is fake news, right? It's a thing. And uh, it's not a new thing. It used to largely be confined to checkout line tabloids, right? I, I, we might have a picture. There's one. Uh, for instance, you used to see these kind of things in the checkout oil or checkout aisle, right? This is fake news, okay? Let me burst your bubble, some of you. This is fake news. Uh, might look like that. Might look like this. Here's another one. Um, now, to the lament of many, the weekly world news went out of business back in 2007, uh, which is this publication. But not to worry, in 2009, after only a two-year hiatus, uh, it was relaunched, no shocker here, as an online and social media publication. So now I think you can access it online, those of you who are troubled by that. Much much like the weekly world news, though, uh, fake news is a thing, and statistics are sobering about it. About a third say they see man-made up, they see made-up political news online. 51% of us say they see inaccurate news. Uh, like 80% of us say that we see inaccurate, uh, inaccurate news often or sometimes. And that, that statistic comes from 2016. It doesn't get any better after that. The German Marshall Fund said that ahead of the 2020 presidential election, falsified information from fake political news sites general, generated 1.8 billion engagements on Facebook. Billion. According to the statistics, this is a staggering 242% increase from the 2016 election. Um, Fake news is everywhere. For me, the trick is finding real news, news that I know I can, that I can trust. But for greater concern for us this morning is what I want to call fake theology. Okay? Um, it, too, is a thing. Pastor Stephen Cole describes it this way. He says, um, here's, the, here's an incident um, from Newsweek a number of years ago. There's a Puerto Rican minister who claims to be Jesus Christ. Uh, at first glance, his congregation in Florida, he says, looks like a typical Hispanic evangelical church. But when Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda walks on stage, the crowd goes wild, shouting, Lord, Lord, Lord. And they're referring to him. Someone on stage announces, It's Jesus Christ himself. Now, Cole writes that you would think that not many would be fooled by such deception, but in fact, Miranda presides over an organization called Growing in Grace, 
which includes more than 300 congregations in two dozen countries. He counts more than 100,000 followers and claims to reach millions more through a 24-hour TV channel, a radio show, and several websites. Um, the Newsweek article reported that his organization has many wealthy, generous donors. He, no surprise, lives lavishly, including diamond-encrusted gold rings and fancy cars. His view of himself, it says, has, has evolved over the years. At first, he didn't claim to be Christ. He was a pastor spreading a mixture of false and true doctrine, um, that under a new covenant with God, there's no sin and no Satan, and people are predestined to be saved. But as his following expanded, so did his claims. In 1998, he claimed that he was the reincarnation of the Apostle Paul. Two years, or a number of years after that, he declared himself to be the Christ. And then um, he called himself the Antichrist and revealed a 666 tattooed on his forearm. He explains that since he is the second coming of Christ, he rejects the continued worship of Jesus of Nazareth. And um, Miranda is only one of many false teachers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Satan has always been active in raising up false teachers to oppose the truth. It was happening in Crete, where there were, as we're going to see today, many deceivers. Now, fake theology is not always that obvious, right? Um, for instance, if you talk with the Mormons or the Latter-day Saints who come to your doorstep... They will tell you straight up they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And you might be wondering, is that really important? Yes. Let me just say yes. That's really, really important. And fake theology is nothing new. The, the New Testament calls it false teaching. Peter was concerned about it. In 1 Peter 2, he says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The apostle John was concerned about it. In 2 John, verse 7, he writes, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In the book of Revelation, the church of Thyatira was caught up in false teaching. In Revelation 2, verse 20, uh, the angel declares, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus was troubled by it. In Mark chapter 7, he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And there Jesus is going all the way back to Isaiah to quote it. In fact, false teaching has been a problem since the beginning. Right? Author Jen Wilkin writes, Like fake news, false teaching has enjoyed a long history. The original misinformer appears in the earliest moments of human history, whispering into Eden's atmosphere. Did God really say? And in a smooth turn of phrase, Satan does what liars do best. He muddles together a heady cocktail of fact and fiction, twisting the very words of God to prey on fear and desire. And she says the pattern for false teaching was set there in the garden. Paul was deeply concerned about false teachers. He talked about it 
in the book of Acts with respect to the people and the church he cared about in Ephesus. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He wrote about it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And in our passage today, in Titus, Paul continues that great concern for God's people, that there are false teachers who are after you. And the book of Titus, it's on the forefront of his mind as he writes in our passage today. And I'll, I'll read it. This is our passage from uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 10, through the uh, end of the chapter. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's good word for us, right? Thanks be to God. So Paul is writing this little section that we're looking at to his friend Titus, whom he left on the Isle of Crete to help strengthen the churches there. Um, quite possibly churches that Paul and Titus had planted there. But here's another interesting thought. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, um, a time called Pentecost, when the gospel was beautifully manifest through people gifted to speak in the language of the nations who had gathered there for Pentecost. And if you look at Acts 2.11, it says that there were both Jews and proselytes there who heard people speaking their own language. And then it says at the, list of a, the end of a long list of nations, there were Cretans and Arabians hearing the telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So at Pentecost in Acts 2, there were people from the Isle of Crete who heard the good news about Jesus. And that could be where the churches in Crete got their start. But regardless, clearly things were a bit of a mess in the churches on the island because many false teachers were teaching things that were leading people astray. You heard it when I read the passage, right? Many false teachers who are upsetting whole families by teaching things for shameful gain that they ought not to teach. So Paul is concerned about the effect that these false teachers were having on the churches in Crete. When he writes that they were upsetting whole families, it's the language of households. And it could be a reference to the churches that met in houses in Crete. That whole, whole groups of these churches, house churches, were being upset by this teaching. And so as we go through this little passage today, let me remind you again, this is not a problem confined to the past. 
It's one you face almost every time you search for an answer to a question about God or Scripture on the web, right? Amongst the options that are pulled up will be false teaching. I almost guarantee it. And this is not just some ancient history lesson. Paul's concern as a pastor are my concerns as a pastor. You are being stalked and baited daily with teaching that doesn't accord with the scriptures. It could be in the weekly world news. And yes, as you can tell here, they dabbled in theology too. Or it could be on YouTube. Or it could be on Fox News. Or it could be on NPR. And yes, those outlets are teaching you theology as well. So let's let Titus 1 safeguard our faith and help us be discerning as we face this onslaught of false teaching that's trying to woo us away from the gospel these days. So first, Paul underscores, again, it's another one of his lists. It's kind of the opposite of the list he had last, we looked at last week for the qualities of elders in the church. These have marks of false teachers, and it's quite a list. And um, let me just highlight them. They are insubordinate. They're empty talkers and deceivers. They're part of something called the circumcision party. They are upsetting whole families, teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be taught. They are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They are devoted to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn people away from the truth. They are defiled and unbelieving. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And these, this teaching, this kind of listing of Paul about what false teachers look like in their day and in ours, you can kind of put them in three large buckets. Their character, their teaching, and their conduct. We'll, we'll look at it in a little different order, but first their character. In verse 10, he says, there are many so there are many false teachers in Crete who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They are insubordinate, he says. And I think you may have mind in the way they relate to the teaching that he left for them as an apostle. Right? They don't submit to it. They don't submit to um, what we now have in the pages of our Bibles written by Paul. They would not submit to it, nor to him, it seems. And this is often a mark of false teachers. They use the scriptures, but they don't submit to them. And there's a difference. When you listen to teachers, do they submit to the scripture or do they use it to serve their agenda? Are they sitting, do you get a sense they're sitting under the teaching of the Bible? It's one reason here at North Wake we commonly teach through books of the Bible. Okay? And even when we address topics, frequently we'll have a main text that anchors our teaching on a topic. It helps us be in submission to the scriptures. It protects us from cherry-picking passages that can be bent to what we like or what we believe. They weren't in submission to the scriptures. They weren't in submission to anyone else either, likely including the Apostle Paul. And this too is often a common mark of false teachers in our day. And so as you, as you listen to people on the web, if you choose to do that, you have to ask questions like, 
do they have an independent board of non-family members that oversees their ministry? Are they accountable to local church elders that oversee their teaching? Professor Nathan Finn shrewdly observes, there's a reason so many false teachers today begin new movements or work as independent ministers through television or the internet. See, they don't want to submit to anybody. So another trait that comes to the forefront of Paul's list, in addition to them being unsubordinate and not submissive, is that they are deceptive. He calls them deceivers in verse 10. He calls them liars in verse 12. And your spiritual teachers ought to be honest folk, high integrity in their personal dealings, in fidelity to scripture, even in the stories that they tell, right? I mean, it, for too, too many pastors these days are getting caught plagiarizing someone else's stories and pretending like they're their own. Um, beware teachers who bear these marks, Paul is warning us. They're insubordinate and they're deceptive. He also says they're motivated by a desire for shameful gain in verse 11. Again, when you get a sense that a, that a teacher, a Bible teacher, is in it for the money, run away, right? Run away fast. If you pick up, if you smell that, run away. Okay? Now, this can also have application to reputation. Beware teachers who crave celebrity. You know, there's a reason that this is not called Larry Trotter Ministries, right? Because it's not about Larry Trotter. Beware teachers who crave celebrity. Now, having said that, just because somebody's ministry is named after them, that's, that's, not a, that's not a disqualifying mark. But you ought to wonder why and kind of do a little homework, right? Um, personal gain. The desire for personal gain, whether financial or, or of reputation, is a warning sign. Verse 12, this is that quote we've been talking about from the Cretan poet. One of the Cretans, a poet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gut gluttons. Paul says these marks fit these false teachers in their day. Clearly, their character is suspect. So, it doesn't matter how talented a teacher is, how many books they have written, how many followers they have. If their character is not the humble, high-integrity character of Jesus, then change the channel, right? Run away. Find someone else. Because character, of course, shapes action. And the second bucket of concern for Paul about these people is their works, the way they live their lives. Down, look at down in verse 16. They profess to know God, it says, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So a recurring teaching in Paul's writings is that true faith shows up in good works. Paul's going to write elsewhere that good deeds are conspicuous. James chimes in and says that faith without works is dead. These teachers were hypocrites. Their lives did not match their teaching. 
There was no evidence in their life of Christ-like humility and service, no sacrificial love and care for others. A teacher's life should echo his or her teaching, not be at odds with it. Um, you know, I was grieved, deeply grieved, in recent uh, months and the last year to hear of what seemed to be verifiable accusations against Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. It was, it was devastating. His ordination as a Christian minister was pulled by his denomination posthumously because of accusations of sexually predatory behavior. Um, you know, the Apostle John's teaching comes to mind. In 3 John verse 11, it says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Right? So it's not just their teaching, Paul is saying. It's their life and character and deeds. You need to know the character of the people whose teaching you are sitting under. But of course, Paul is also greatly concerned with their teaching. They're called false teachers, after all. And he tackles that concern somewhat in verses 14 and 15. Look, look there with me. Paul says they are not devoting themselves, they ought not be devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, he says, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And it seems here that their, their teaching is untethered from the teaching of the apostles, which we have in the pages of the Bible. And instead, they embrace Jewish myths and the teachings of men as opposed to the teaching of God. Paul refers to them as people from the circumcision party. So clearly, these false teachers were coming from a Jewish background in their day. And that may be all that Paul means by that remark, is that he's identifying them as coming from a Jewish sect or background. But if you put that idea of a circumcision party up against the idea that they were devoted to teaching Jewish myths and the commands of men in contrast to the commands of God, it may be that what's going on here is what could be called a kind of legalism, a kind of gospel plus something. Uh, what Danny Aiken calls heretical math, where they're adding to or subtracting from, multiplying or dividing the gospel. And so they may well have been adding to or substituting teaching for the gospel of grace. And in this section, I was really helped by um, a professor named Tim Chester from England. And in his little commentary on Titus, he has tremendous insights. And I'd like to quote him at length here for you so you can benefit from it too. But he writes about this kind of legalism. Uh, where we add, either add man-made rules to or substitute them for the gospel of grace. He says, laws and rules that look as if they are about promoting and protecting godliness are actually about limiting godliness. They reduce godliness to ticking some boxes. As long as I do this, that and the other, then I'm okay. Or, as long as I'm circumcised, then I'm godly. So you can be circumcised and a lying glutton and yet convince yourself that you are godly. You see how it works? 
being godly in this way of thinking becomes being legalistic in several areas of life and ignoring ungodliness in others. So I can convince myself I'm godly because I listen to Christian music and pray even though I fiddle my timesheets at work along with everyone else or because I don't touch alcohol even though I am short-tempered with my wife or because I keep the Sabbath extremely strictly even though I don't give my time on the Sabbath to loving others in my church. The irony, he says, is this. When we react against some aspects of our culture and then set up rules to protect ourselves from them, we ignore other ungodly aspects of that same culture. We limit the demands of godliness, reducing it from becoming Christ-like to becoming a little less like our culture in a few special ways. Christian maturity is exchanged for not sleeping around, not getting drunk, and turning up at Bible study. So he's saying we, we reduce becoming like Christ to a series of boxes of things we can do. And we always choose the boxes that we're good at. Right? He continues, and this was really helpful for me. He says, this kind of teaching always sounds impressive because it seems to reflect a deep concern about worldliness and a radical commitment to holiness. But he says Paul's assessment of it is damning on three counts. Rather than being motivated by holiness, it's motivated by dishonest gain in verse 11, be it financial or reputational. Rather than being about obeying God's will, it's about obeying merely human commands in verse 14. And rather than keeping people pure, in fact, it corrupts people in verse 15. This kind of teaching always sounds impressive because it seems to reflect a deep concern about worldliness and a radical commitment to holiness. A helpful way of thinking about the difference is this. Legalism says you should not do this. The gospel says you need not do this. Because God is always bigger and better than sin. Legalism says you should not sleep with your boyfriend. You should read your Bible every day. You should not get drunk. You should witness to your friends. You should not lose your temper. None of those are good news to someone struggling with those issues. To them, it is a condemnation and sounds oppressive. What the gospel says is this. You need not. You need not get drunk because Jesus offers a better refuge. You need not lose your temper because God is in control of the situation. Sin is always making promises. And the gospel exposes those promises as false promises. And points to God who is bigger and better than anything sin offers. That is good news, he says. Legalism says you should not do this. The gospel says you need not do this because Jesus offers something bigger and better. He offers living water. Now, it's hard for us to know exactly what these false teachers on Crete were about. But when you put the pieces together, it points towards a kind of legalism that sets up those little boxes we can check and call ourselves godly. Not a kind of grace that throws us on Christ as a sinner, find help to be free from sin and live godly lives in His strength. So, in light of this kind of teaching, this morning... I want you to think about your teachers, the ones that you sit under, whether that is in person or online or in print. And let's walk back through these these buckets Paul talked about. I want you to think about your teachers. Let's kind of combine the first two. What about their character and their, their works, their life? 
Paul says they must be above reproach. Men and women growing to be increasingly like Christ. Are your teachers above reproach? This is really hard to know if you're watching YouTube Bible teachers, isn't it? It's hard to discern that. But if you're going to do that, here are some questions to ask of people whose teaching you watch online. Are they in submission to other leaders? Do they have a board? Is there a church whose elders they sit under? Or are they loose cannons without any accountability? Do some digging. You ought to be able to discern that from their information that's available on the web. If you can't find that, an answer to that concern, I would find another teacher. What about their works? Does the ministry they're connected with demonstrate Christ-like care and humility and love towards those who are in need, who are outside of their little group? Do some digging and find out about their character and their life. That's what the New Testament says must be known to you about your teachers. You must know the caliber of their character and their life. That's why chapter 1 did all that list of traits of an elder. What about their teaching? You can ask questions like this. Are they always innovative? Are they always coming up with a new perspective on this or that? Or are they content to teach faithfully the scriptures in keeping with what has been the historic tradition of Christians for centuries? See, historically faithful teaching doesn't usually sell well. Novelty does. Are they always innovative? Always have a new perspective? Do they, are they in submission to the scriptures? Do you sense that they are teaching the whole scripture? Or are they only specializing in hobby horse doctrines that they are curious about or that serve their purposes? Do they handle the scriptures humbly? Do you sense that they sit under it or are they manipulating it? What is their reputation? Do you even know their reputation? Do they have references or endorsements from other respectable teachers? Would your elders at North Wake recommend that you sit under their teaching? You know, you can ask our elders and see what they think. But honestly, the better you know the scriptures, the better you'll be able to discern false teaching. Are you sitting under the scriptures being taught to you by faithful teachers in your local church, by men and women that you trust? And again, this is not a solo sport, right? You don't have to figure this out all by yourself. We are richly blessed with elders who are true biblical scholars. And they often help me with difficult matters. Let them help you as well. You know, this past year, we had some concerns that were raised to um, kind of, honestly, they kind of came to us indirectly. There were concerns about uh, whether or not Southeastern Seminary had departed from faithfulness to the gospel. These were raised by YouTube uh, personalities. 
And so some of our members of our congregation saw those and they were, as Paul would have, have said, they were distressed by it. They were upset by it. And so what should you do in that kind of circumstance, right? Well, you would go to one of our elders who works and teaches at Southeastern Seminary and you would find out if there's any truth to that matter, right? That's why we did the coffee with a prof conversation this last year. Um, use our elders. Let them help you discern the validity of the teaching that you are exploring, right? That's why you're here, right? That's why you call North Wake home, in part because you trust these men and the way they teach you the scriptures. Paul was greatly concerned about the effect this kind of teaching was having on the churches. Whole, whole house churches were being upset by this kind of teaching. It's not a harmless thing, false teaching, right? Peter doesn't mince words about it when he says in 2 Peter 2, the opening verses, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then he says, and many will follow their sensuality, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow, he says. There are many false teachers in Crete, and there are many in our day. You know, some of you will, will, will remember the story. I've shared it with you before, but uh, I grew up with a friend. Uh, I'll call him Jim, and Jim, uh, Jim was brilliant. He was a valedictorian of our class, and uh, we all went, ended up at the same college, um, there were four of us sharing an apartment. Uh, Jim was an architect, rooming with three engineers. So we, we were uh, really engaged in our academic work as uh, undergraduates. And we were also all engaged. We were all three strong Christians for our age. And we were all three engaged in serving in leadership in different Christian organizations on our campus. The three of us who were engineers, we were all involved in kind of standard Christian organizations like uh, Campus Crusade, now known as Crew or InterVarsity or known organizations like this. Jim got involved instead in a small house group um, that had a really, really strong leader whose name was Leo. Now, as we watched this, it started out to be just really, really rigorous Bible study um, with, a, with a strong emphasis on prophecy. And that moved along, in fact, as we listened to Jim talk, it had an almost exclusive uh, emphasis on prophecy. And as, as this unfolded, my brilliant friend Jim uh, began to stop attending classes, he and his then girlfriend. Um, they stopped attending classes and were ex exclusively involved in this, uh, what turned out to be a little cult, and they ended up in a motel room uh, waiting for the end of the world to come. Um, you know, and as I, as I think back to Jim, I wish I'd seen it coming, right? I wish I'd been able to warn him. Jim was smarter than me. He was probably a more mature Christian than me. Um, and it happened to him. 
And so this morning, as your pastor, I just want you to know, there are, there are wolves after you. They are after you. As in Crete, there are many false teachers. And the remedy that Paul says for the churches in Crete who are suffering this is what we saw last week, right? Um, he says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town for every church as I directed you. Godly leaders are the great safeguard against false teachers in a church. Leaders who will teach and model the truth of the scriptures of the scriptures. And I, I would be remiss not to say this morning that I'm so deeply thankful for our elders at North Wake. They are this caliber of men. They are faithful teachers of God's word. They are subordinate to it. And they are men who are above reproach. They are not perfect, but they are exemplary and growing in godliness. And so without hesitation this morning, I say, Follow their example. Sit under their teaching. Welcome their oversight on teachings that you're exploring, teachers that you wonder about sitting under. Now, Paul is writing to Titus with instructions for the elders. And so, my brothers who are elders, um, a brief word to you and other teachers in our church the scriptures place a strong responsibility to protect the flock on pastors and elders and teachers in a local church. In verse 11, Paul says that these false teachers must be silenced. In verse 13, he says that there are those who must be rebuked sharply. Now, in this verse, I don't think his focus is exclusively on the false teachers being rebuked, but it's all, he also is asking us to rebuke those who have begun to follow the false teaching in the church. Um, a loving but strong rebuke may be needed for those who are dabbling in teachers who are not sound doctrinally. These false teachers are desiring to lead many astray and we must silence them in the lives of our people. And of course, we must carefully self-assess to make sure to be mindful of our own life and doctrine. I, I, I like the way the New International Version says it in 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So my brothers, hear my words of encouragement. I thank God for you this morning. But what I'd like to do now as we close our service together is I'd like to ask you to stand with me. And I'd like for us to recite together an historic confession of Christian faith. It's called the Apostles' Creed, and it's a common statement of Christian faith that's shared by true believers all over the world. And I'd like for us to read that together, and I think, yes, that one worked. Um, so if you would, let's recite this together, and then we'll sing of our, of our faith together as we close our service. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This I truly believe. Amen.